What we're focusing on here is what the United States government should be able to do within the United States. And the United States government should never be monitoring attorney-client communications unless one of the very narrow exceptions is met. Obviously, if there's reason to believe that the attorney-client communications are committing a crime, then there's a basis for probable cause. But short of something like that, the government must respect attorney-client communications. Even if others in the world might somehow be monitoring it, that doesn't give license to the United States government to do so. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. And I'm Craig Williams in a gray and overcast Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. Well, before we introduce today's topic, uh, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Clio, the online practice management for lawyers platform. It's available at www.goclio.com. Well, Bob, in recent news, we've learned that the NSA has been monitoring the privileged attorney-client communications of law firms here in the United States. The initial reporting indicates that this monitoring has occurred against the foreign clients of U.S. law firms. But really, how far does this monitoring go? And what impact does it have on our rights? Well, to help us explore that topic today, we're going to have two guests. uh, And let me begin by welcoming Erwin Chemerinsky. Erwin is the founding dean and distinguished professor of law, as well as the Raymond Pryke Professor of First Amendment Law at the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Among his many areas of expertise are included constitutional law, federal practice, and civil rights. Erwin is also a renowned author of seven books and nearly 200 articles in top law reviews. He's argued before the nation's highest courts and is a regular commentator on legal issues before the national and local media and is a returning guest to Lawyer to Lawyer. Welcome, Erwin Chemerinsky. It's great to be with you again. Bob, in addition, we have joining us today John Eastman. He is the Henry Salvatore Professor of Law and Community Service at Chapman University School of Law. He was also the school's dean from 2007 to January 2010 when he stepped down to pursue a bid for California Attorney General. He's the founding director of the Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence, former law clerk for Justice Clarence Thomas, and he has served as the director of Congressional and Public Affairs at the United States Commission on Civil Rights during the Reagan administration. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, John Eastman. Thanks for having me on. Well, our first question is for Irwin. For the benefit of our listeners who aren't as familiar with this topic, what's the origin of the attorney-client privilege in the United States, and how is it related to the Constitution? Well, the attorney-client privilege actually predates the United States. The attorney-client privilege can be traced back to English law. The idea is that a person should be able to talk to his or her attorney in complete confidence. In fact, California Business and Professional Code says attorneys must keep client confidences inviolate. The only way that clients can feel comfortable talking to their attorneys is to know that it's confidential. There are some very specific exceptions. That's not what we're focusing on here today. And it also has a basis in the Constitution. The Sixth Amendment to the Constitution guarantees a right to counsel in criminal cases. Due process often ensures counsel in civil cases. And the attorney-client privilege is obviously essential to effective representation by a lawyer. 
John, what about the circumstances we're talking about here? The allegation is that the NSA was possibly monitoring the communications of a law firm. It's been loosely identified as Meyer Brown, although Meyer Brown has not uh, confirmed or necessarily denied that, I guess. But it's not a criminal context. Are there constitutional implications to uh, what's uh, supposedly happened here with regard to Meyer Brown? I don't think so, but I want to correct one point. As I understand the story that's been leaked, it was not the NSA that was conducting the surveillance. It was an Australian agency who were listening on surveillance in their country and notified the NSA that it was conducting surveillance on these communications and offered to share it with us. So that's a, that's a dramatically different story, and that was reported just a couple of weeks ago in the National Law Journal. Uh, the second is the inability of our investigative agencies to listen in on calls and whatever is something that applies domestically, and it's a subject of domestic law. Uh, it's never applied to communications abroad. Uh, for good reason. We don't have an expectation of privacy in those communications, quite frankly because we know that everybody else in the world is engaged in the exact same kind of surveillance. And to my knowledge, there's no court decision that says that a communication with somebody overseas uh, is outside the purview of our intelligence agencies. Is it reasonable for attorneys? So you're essentially saying, John, that it's not reasonable for attorneys to expect attorney-client communications to be confidential if we exchange it with a client in another country? Well, yeah, when you're talking to a client in Russia, for example, like one ought to be pretty aware that the Russians are probably listening into that call. And here we have now leaked evidence, we don't know for certain, but that when you were having a conversation with somebody in Australia, that somebody in Australia may be well listening to that call. And so if, if that's happening everywhere else in the world, I think it'd be naive <laughs> to think that those calls are not going to be listened in on. And therefore, if you're an, an attorney engaged in a conversation with a client, you ought to take steps to make sure that those calls are not not being made in a way that they can be listened into. For example, if it's a highly sensitive thing, get the client into your office and have a conversation there rather than having a conversation over communications wires that you know quite likely are being listened to by agencies all around the world. Erwin, is it reasonable for us in the United States to be equally naive and think that the NSA is not monitoring our communications with our clients, especially clients who are foreign clients? The NSA should not be monitoring communications with clients. Who was monitoring these communications and what law firm it is, we don't know. The New York Times first reported this, a front-page story on Sunday. And whether it was the NSA is initially reported Australia, we don't know. But I also think it misses the point. What we're focusing on here is what the United States government should be able to do within the United States. And the United States government should never be monitoring attorney-client communications unless one of the very narrow exceptions is met. Obviously, if there's reason to believe that the attorney-client communications are committing a crime, then there's a basis for probable cause. But short of something like that, the government must respect attorney-client communications. Even if others in the world might somehow be monitoring it, that doesn't give license to the United States government to do so. Where does that line get drawn with terrorism? That's you know, obviously a crime, and if the government suspects that an attorney is communicating with a potential terrorist, is that communication wide open? Again, it depends on what you mean. If one believes that the United States government is listening in because it's a terrorist, that's not a justification under the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. If, however, there's probable cause to believe that the attorney himself or herself is a part of the terrorist plot, then being an attorney doesn't provide immunity. But that's a crucial distinction. Is it just that it's a terrorist who's talking to a lawyer? 
that terrorist has the same right to talk to lawyers as anybody else? Or is it that the lawyer is part of a terrorist plot, and then being a lawyer doesn't provide protection? I mean, in this case, Bayer Brown had said that it was it had no indication that there had been any surveillance, and, and I, I do stand corrected. It was the Australian Signals Directorate that uh, had notified the NSA that it had intercepted uh, communications. What remedies would a law firm have were it to suspect this had been going on? What could a law firm do about it? Well, I can only say what Mayor Brown claims they've done. They, they take data protection seriously, they said in the news account. They invest significant resources to keep that client information secure. I suppose there are ways technologically to ascertain whether your phone lines are secure or not. But as I said at the outset, if you're engaged in a very sensitive discussion with your client, particularly on a criminal matter, you would not want to do that over a phone that's being carried by third parties. You would not want to do that over email that are being held by Google or other third parties. You would take other steps to make sure that that attorney-client conversation can be kept secret. The, the case that the New York Times reported on was one involving trade negotiations that were going on between Indonesia and the United States. And I'm not sure we want to, on the front end, unilaterally disarm from the kind of communications intelligence that every other country in the world engages in, put ourselves at a disadvantage in those trade negotiations because they're getting a sense of what our negotiating points are but we're not allowed to get a sense of what theirs are. That's why the Australians contacted us in the first place. And, you know, we've got to be realistic here. We don't live in a world where those kind of communications are secure. And like I said at the outset, I think we would be naive to think that any communication such as that would be secure when everybody else in the world is doing what they can to listen in on communications that it's necessary for their own national security or other interests to listen in on. Erwin, John's theory on this is to you know, simply eliminate the wires in the communication. What legal obligations arise as a consequence of this knowledge for lawyers? What steps do we now have to take because we've discovered that potentially our communications are going to be monitored? Well, first, if you take what John says seriously, the only way a lawyer can ever talk to a client is face-to-face in a secure room. Because John says, Anytime a lawyer talks to a client, there are always a chance that electronic communications could be intercepted. There's always a chance the phone could be tapped, the email could be read. In fact, there's always a chance that there could be listening devices anyplace. That just can't be what the law should do. It has to be that the law provides more protection for attorneys and clients than that. And second, I disagree with John in terms of what the United States should be able to do. If we accept the New York Times reports, it was Indonesia was in trade negotiation with the United States, and Indonesia was represented by the law firm of Mayor Brown. The United States should not be trying to get a strategic advantage by monitoring the communications between a lawyer and a client in these circumstances. The lawyer-client privilege is so basic to our legal system, and John would leave almost nothing of it. Well, it also seems that there are circumstances where it's just impossible to control the atmosphere, the environment in which you're interviewing a witness. I mean, if you've ever talked to a lawyer who's representing uh, one of the Guantanamo detainees, their ability to interact with their clients, their ability to review the files regarding their clients are all tightly, tightly controlled in a very controlled environment. How can they do anything to ensure that everything that's happening is not being monitored? They can't ensure, but they take steps. I've represented a Guantanamo detainee. I've been to Guantanamo to represent my client. When I am in the room with my client, there is no one from the United States there. The United States government is not supposed to be listening into that conversation. My notes have to go to a secure facility. If I want to review my notes, I have to go there. But the United States government doesn't get to, at least those who are involved in the prosecution function, review that. 
nothing is going to be perfect, but the fact that it can't be perfect isn't a reason that we put up our hands and say, well, there's nothing left of the attorney-client privilege. We have to do all we can to protect it, because it really is so basic. If clients are going to talk to their lawyers, they need to have the assurance that it will remain confidential. John, is there a difference between the attorney-client privilege as it might relate to a criminal defendant compared to a civil defendant or a plaintiff? Well, I think there is. And, of course, the remedies that are available are different as well. A breach of the attorney-client privilege on the criminal side, the information gained, and anything derived from it cannot be introduced into evidence. And so there's a protection there, even if the call happens to be listened into for other reasons, such as intelligence gathering. That distinction goes a long way toward protecting the reasons we have an attorney-client privilege in the first place. It's also much more significant that the attorney-client privilege exists in the criminal context uh, than it does in the civil context. As Erwin pointed out at the beginning, the Fifth Amendment guarantees right to counsel in criminal matters. And although we've read into the Constitution a similar guarantee in certain kinds of civil matters, it's not generally the case in civil matters. And so the need for it is less significant there. I don't disagree that it's an important thing, and we ought to do what we can domestically to shore it up, and this is a domestic rule. But one has to be very careful when engaging in communications internationally that is quite evident. If you didn't know it before, you certainly know it now. It's quite evident that agencies all over the world are able to listen into. And let's suppose the United States said to the Australians, "Uh, thank you very much, but uh, we're not going to take that information. And the Australians didn't say, well, there are other people involved in those trade negotiations, European countries, the EU or Central America or Southeast Asia, will provide it to them because they may have a reason to have it as well. The same communication is listened into, the same so-called breach of the attorney-client privilege has occurred. The only people that are disadvantaged by not participating in that discussion or gathering that information now is the United States. I don't think that's the world we live in, however much we might wish it otherwise. We need to take a short break before we move on to our next segment. Uh, Stay with us, and we'll be back in just a moment to talk more about possible NSA snooping and the attorney-client privilege. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. And welcome back to Lawyer Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams. With me today is Dr. John Eastman and uh, from Chapman University School of Law and Dean Erwin Chemerinsky from the University of California Irvine School of Law. There is a case called Clapper versus Amnesty International where there, we sought to challenge the NSA's monitoring of communications, and the court ruled that there was no standing. John, what now? Have we now established that there's standing and that this is actually occurring, and will the court reconsider its opinion from the standpoint of the next party that comes up? 
Well, what we've learned from this case is that the Australian intelligence agencies were, were, had the ability to listen in on certain calls, international calls, and they may or may not have shared that with the NSA. The Clapper case talks about, you know, just the fact that there's a remote possibility that your particular call may have been listened into doesn't mean that it was, doesn't mean that you suffered any damage from it, and therefore you have no standing under our general standing rules to challenge that broadly. If, in fact, you get information that your calls have been listened into, that would give you the standing to bring the case, but then it's still an open question whether you would win on the merits, particularly in a case like this where it wasn't even the NSA listening in on the call in the first place. Erwin, what's your sense of that decision? Let's go back to Clapper. What happened was that Congress in 2008 amended the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act to expand the ability of the NSA to listen into conversations and monitor emails between those in the United States and those in selected foreign countries. The day the law went into effect, Amnesty International filed a lawsuit. The plaintiffs included lawyers who said they would be chilled from communicating with their clients because the only way to do so would be to go and travel there because they couldn't know if the communications were being intercepted and they had to protect the attorney-client privilege. The plaintiffs were journalists who said they wanted to talk to sources in foreign countries, but they were chilled from doing so. The plaintiffs included business people who said they wanted to talk to those in foreign countries and were chilled from doing so. The United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit said this claim of the chilling of speech was an injury sufficient for standing in federal court. The Supreme Court, five to four, reversed. The court was divided along ideological lines. Justice Alito wrote for the court, joined by Robert Scalia, Kennedy, and Thomas. Justice Breyer wrote for the dissent, joined by Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan. Justice Alito said no person can show that the NSA has listened into his or her communications. The NSA doesn't tell people when it happens. So no one has standing. Justice Breyer said, that just can't be right. The government can violate the law this way, and no one would have standing. Now, in reality, there are ways of getting standing. If the government indicates that it's going to use evidence gained from such surveillance, then, as John pointed out, a criminal defendant can challenge it. Also, it may be that if individuals find out that a service provider has turned over information, like Verizon turning over to the NSA, you can challenge that. But this does make it much harder to challenge the government, even if you accept that the government's acting illegally. What steps should attorneys be taking at this point to protect themselves? Is there anything that we can do? I think if an attorney is in a situation where the attorney has reason to believe that the government might be monitoring the communication, what John said here is right. The attorney has to take all reasonable precautions to safeguard attorney-client communications. That includes all forms of electronic security, and it may mean that certain kinds of things can be discussed only face-to-face with the hope that it's in a secure place. John, do you feel that this is at all much ado about nothing, at least with regard to the uh, Mayor Brown incident? Mayor Brown attorneys have said that if anybody was listening to their conversations, they probably would have been bored or not very excited. You seem to be suggesting that they should have expected this and that we have no evidence that it's going on anywhere beyond this, uh, or at least involving the NSA. Uh, So is the discussion about this case, uh, and there's been a lot of it, been overblown? I don't think so, but I think the cautionary note is one for lawyers, that uh, you have to recognize whether or not the United States is engaging this, most of our allies and enemies around the world certainly are. 
and that means sensitive matters on international phone communications ought not to be discussed. You've got to come up with another mechanism to do that. We take steps, for example, on our email. We all put on the bottom of our emails, you know, this is an attorney-client privilege communication. If it falls into your hands, uh, please send it back to us. Well, you know, anybody worth uh, half a salt knows that that's not going to protect the attorney-client privilege if it hits send to the wrong button. You will have waived it. Uh, and so on really sensitive communications, you take extra steps. You encrypt the communication. You use a service that encrypts, or you send a pass access to the client in order to access the documents behind a secure site. Or on very sensitive communications, you go meet in person. And uh, attorneys do that uh, sometimes, but I think this story ought to indicate to us that we ought to do it more often, that even if the United States is told you cannot do this, apparently the Australians are, and the Europeans are, and the, and the Russians are, and, and the Indonesians are, and so those communications are being listened into by somebody, and if it's going to be detrimental to you and your client's interests, you ought to take steps not to make that happen. This kind of reminds me of the situation that goes on between the music and movie industry and the hackers. One minute, the movie industry comes up with something that you can't copy the movie, and then the hacker figures out a way to copy it, and so on and so on. Are we now saying that attorneys have to go out and change our telephones and buy encrypted phones? No, because most instances, two things I think are safeguards here. If it's an attorney-client communication in a criminal matter, and somebody does listen in on it, that matter is not going to be able to be used against your client, that information. So certainly on the criminal front, there is that safeguard. But beyond that, yeah, you've got to be careful. And if you're involved in an intense negotiation with an overseas client on a mega international corporate merger, for example, you ought to be pretty well aware that if you pick up the phone to call the client and discuss a key term in that negotiation, you might well find that term now known by the other side. Is there any obligation here for the Obama administration to come out and explicitly address this issue? I, I don't see that they have, at least in what I've read about it. Should the administration reassure us in some way or set policies, explicit policies, that lawyers can expect that the uh, government will adhere to with regard to uh, the respect for the attorney-client privilege? I think there is a burden on the Obama administration. You know, we're talking here about the law. We're talking some about policy. But I think what's really omitted from John's analysis is the Fourth Amendment and what we want our government to be doing relative to privacy. And the fact that the government can do something doesn't mean the government should do something. And the fact that other countries in the world are doing it doesn't mean that this country, with its constitution and its commitment to privacy, should do that. And so my hope is that President Obama will very loudly and clearly say, this is a nation that respects the attorney-client privilege and unless one of the few very small, narrow exceptions is met, this country is not going to listen into communications between lawyers and clients. Are you advocating that we change our laws? Do we need a congressional statute that says the United States government cannot listen into attorney-client privilege? I mean, it seems like they've already done the opposite of that. My hope is that everyone would respect the attorney-client privilege and that the government wouldn't do this other than perhaps inadvertently in a rare instance. But if there's any doubt about it, yeah, we should have a new law. And I think we need new laws with regard to privacy and electronic communication in many areas. In fact, the president convened his own task force on privacy, and it came back with a report in December, and it proposed many needed changes with regard to electronic surveillance in order to protect privacy. Senators and representatives on both sides of the political aisle, Patrick Leahy and the Senate, a Democrat, um, James Sensenbrenner, a Republican in the House, have co-sponsored a bill to provide us greater privacy with regard to electronic communications. It really is essential right now, early in the 21st century. 
Of course, the very need for a law to support that policy pretty strongly suggests that it's not already covered by the Fourth Amendment or otherwise. The Fourth Amendment applies to persons, houses, papers, and effects. That's not what's at issue here. And there's certainly no global right to attorney-client privilege. We do have a very well-developed one here in the United States, but it's not recognized in most parts of the globe. And so when you travel to France or travel to Indonesia or other places that may or may not recognize an attorney-client privilege, you don't have an expectation of having it for communications there. There. And therefore, I think it's reasonable to assume you don't have such that protection when you're calling into that country either. Whether that would be the perfect world that we could make if we were philosopher kings, maybe we would have a global attorney-client privilege. But the simple fact of the matter is there is not one right now. And what happened here, if you take the New York Times story as true, is that another agency, without violating their own laws, listened into on the communication and offered to share it with us because it had some uh, benefit or significance to a negotiation we were in the middle of. I suppose we could say, no, don't give us any of that information, but we go to extraordinary lengths to gather just that kind of information in all sorts of other ways. It would be a little odd to say we're going to take that off the table, even though the rest of the world we know is considering that kind of information. All right, we have just about reached the end of our show, and before we conclude, we want to give each of you an opportunity to give your closing thoughts on the topic uh, and also uh, let our listeners know uh, how they can follow up with you if you'd care to do that. So, Erwin Chemerinsky, let's uh, begin with you. Sure. Thanks again for having me on to the program. My position is a simple one. The attorney-client privilege is a really basic part of our legal system, and the United States government must protect it and must obey it doesn't matter what other countries in the world are doing. The United States government should not be intruding into the attorney-client relationship unless one of a few very narrow exceptions is met. The idea that the United States government directly or indirectly is getting attorney-client privileged material is just outrageous. The government should repudiate doing that. If necessary, legislation should be adopted. And if anybody ever wants to reach me, my email is E-C-H-E-M-E-R-I-N-S-K-Y at law.uci.edu. Thanks, Erwin. And John Eastman, your closing thoughts. I do agree that it would be nice if we could have greater protection for the attorney-client privilege that extends beyond the borders of the United States. The fact of the matter is it does not. There is no global right to counsel, and very few other countries in the world would respect such a claim. You know, we ought not to be putting ourselves at a competitive disadvantage on these matters. I think there is adequate protection for any information gained there not to be used in a criminal context. That certainly goes to the heart of what the Fourth Amendment and the Fifth Amendment's protection for the right of counsel guarantee. And the notion that other countries are going to simply fall in line because the United States more broadly interprets its Fourth Amendment or passes its own statutes is just naive, I think. And so we live in a world of what the world really is, not what we would like it to be. And we cannot unilaterally disarm when our opponents and even our friends are engaging in investigation and telecommunications uh, investigations that we all know they have the capability to do. So the message for lawyers is be careful on the sensitive conversations that you have with clients overseas. And if they are truly sensitive, figure out a way not to have to pick it up and put it on a wire that's probably being listened to. Thanks. And is there a way for our listeners to follow up with you, John? Yes. You can reach me through our Claremont Institute website, claremont.org. Thank you both very much for being on the program. Bob, we've come to the point in the show where we each have 30 seconds to share our closing thoughts before we're cut off for the buzzer. So we'll flip it to you. Thanks, Greg. Well, obviously, I agree that any encroachment on the attorney-client privilege is unacceptable. I don't understand why it becomes acceptable 
because the circumstances uh, involve clients who are international, I would like to see the government explicitly and expressly disavow uh, any kind of snooping on the attorney-client privilege and be clear about what their policy is. I don't think that the circumstances of this uh, supposed case involving trade negotiations justify it. I don't see why they justify it, and I would like to see it stop. Craig? I'm almost on John's side on this one. It seems like you know the reality of the world at this point is that we have to expect that our communications are being monitored, and I think it's naive to believe that our communications here in the United States are not being monitored. I, I'm too cynical to think that the NSA is not listening in to my conversations with my clients, whether they're civil or whether they're criminal. And I think the reality is that we're going to see our attorney-client privilege, apparently, which the United States is one of the only countries in the world that has it. And I think we're ultimately going to find that it erodes and is gone. All right. Well, thanks. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. Thanks again to Erwin Chemerinsky and John Eastman for taking the time to be with us today and share their thoughts. Uh, thanks to each of you for being on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Such a pleasure. This is Bob Ambrogi. And this is Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.